Greetings, dear listeners. With all the chaos surrounding the possible indictment of Trump on everyone's minds and questions about the sustainability of American democracy floating around, Shadi and I invited Jason Stanley onto the show. Listeners probably know Jason as a prolific theorist of fascism and a somewhat controversial Twitter personality. He's also an accomplished philosopher with a vision for what a public intellectual should be. On to the show. Jason Stanley to Wisdom of Crowds. It's great to have you. I'm really excited about this conversation, in part because I think over the past few years, we've had some significant disagreements about Donald Trump, um, the use of the word fascism, the resilience of American democracy. And we're at a very sensitive time right now. So, you know, I know we'll probably disagree about some things, but I'm not sure what and to what extent. So I'm excited to and to find out. And this is really the only way to find out is to kind of talk it through and see what we think about these um, these issues. And I'd just be curious to start, how are you feeling about this moment? What was maybe your initial reaction to the news of the search of Trump's residence in Mar-a-Lago, are you more optimistic in light of that? Less so, and and uh, and anything else related to that? Uh, well, first of all, great to be in conversation, Shadi and Demer. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm. I think it's important that we check in on each other. Those of us. Uh, who've been commenting on these issues over the years, uh, because we're all deeply fallible. And so checking our notes against each other is an important part of the work that we do. Uh, turning to the question you're asking, uh, I, I want to separate what I say sort of in my status as a philosopher and my training as, a, as an academic uh, from being just an ordinary citizen. I'm not an expert on predictions of what will happen, uh, and I'm not an expert on what we ought to do. Um, so I'm speaking to some extent in my status as an as a normal citizen, not just not in my status as some kind of expert about what one ought to do, which I try to avoid. I try to stick to analysis. Uh, so um, I mean, my view is um, do the right thing. Uh, the law, if it's a just law, then uh, then follow the just law. Uh, you know, uh, if it ends up if if it ends up us being a strategic error, well, at least you did the right thing. <laughs> you know, I'm a philosopher. Uh, it's if it's a just law, it should be followed. Uh, society should be set up so that uh, institutions are sealed from each other, and each institution follows uh, its institutional uh, uh, mission. Uh, and things are healthiest when everyone follows their institutional missions. Uh, we are a very carceral society, and I'm not in favor of that carcerality. Uh, but uh, but I think that uh, in this case, it, if if uh, you know uh, Mr. Trump has violated many many laws that other people, I'm sure that other people uh, have uh, fallen have been forced to pay for. And uh, and I think the right thing to do should be to follow the laws. And if they're just and if he has violated those laws and 
and and if it's unacceptable for if it's really shown that he's violated them, uh, then uh, then he should be held to account. Uh, otherwise, we are somewhat of a sham as a society. Jason, can I ask you? Um, you know, I, I spent some time uh, this week uh, reading up, uh, reading your recent output, and we'll put a lot of it in the show notes so our our listeners can. Uh, can also go go through some of this stuff. It really struck me just in your answer right now, which I really something I, I appreciate a lot is uh, you said that that you know you really in your writing you try and be an analyst um, rather than a prognosticator or a pundit, and I think that really does come through. But one of the the um, the things that 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 uh, I guess is a question that comes to mind, and and um, even in your answer right now as a citizen um, is. Do you think we're how bad of a place do you think we are as a society right now? Um, because again, your analytical work um, is very much tied to drawing parallels to other far right movements, other far right phenomena, you know, across the globe, throughout history, and in fact, through that runs through the history of this country, uh, through the history of America. Um, and you know, analytically, I, I I get it and I follow it. But you know, it's always there in the background. I think, especially in, in your more popular writing uh, for magazines, newspapers, is um, I'm left with the question of how healthy or how bad off we are right now. Especially again to build on Shadi's question, this current moment. Right. So so here's the good news. I think things have always been bad in this country. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so, you know, I mean, the 1990s were bad <laughs> when the Democrats and joined the Republicans in, in the Republican Southern strategy and doubled down on incarceration and, and various strategies uh, to uh, mass incarcerate and mass police are mostly our black population. So I think things have, have been bad for a long time. Obviously, George W. Bush was bad in his distinctive ways in the, in the follow through to 9/11 and the war on terror. So it's not like uh, it's not like things haven't been bad in the past. Uh, things have been bad in the past. Uh, so uh, uh, my view is that is that every country faces uh, faces nowadays. I mean, it's part of the nature of democracy to face anti-democratic movements. And I try in my my work to to flesh out the kind of of anti-democratic movement that I think is is global now, uh, and I think since the 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, is a, a, a central anti-democratic movement to worry about. Uh, but um, but things have been bad in the past, and we're drawing on those bad things now. Uh, we're drawing on uh, on white replacement theory. We're drawing on Islamophobia. We're drawing on anti-LGBT sentiment. Uh, so uh, and and uh, there's a sort of classic formation uh, happening where you've got billionaires a la Peter Thiel and very and the sort of oil and gas bill, uh, uh, interests together with uh, Christian nationalists uh, and together with uh, white nationalists to get uh, and and these different groups coalescing together uh, because they see an interest convergence. Uh, and this is not the uh, first time this has happened, and it won't be the last time. But I think it's a it's a perilous time. Uh, you know, the good news it's always is, is democracy is always perilous. It's always fragile. Uh, so, so just so would you say then, 
in your uh, frame, this is, I think Shadi would very much agree with this, is it's democracy is the good. Is that right? Would that be a fair yes. characterization? Yes, yes. I, you know, I mean, democ liberal democracy is that those are my values. Mm. Okay, so the qualification is liberal democracy. That's where you would draw a careful distinction because that's different. So I would say that democracy is the good, but I would qualify that and and speak about democracy in a more procedural sense as a way to regulate conflict and to ensure the transfer of power and political competition. But you know, from from reading your work, you're talking about a, a much thicker conception of democracy where you would very much emphasize <clears throat> the liberal in liberal democracy. Is that fair to say? Yes. I, I, so not just procedural, uh, but rights for minorities, uh, the, the two values of democracy, equality and freedom. Uh, and so structure for me, the procedural aspect of democracy is uh, is a way to uh, to help ensure the furtherance of those values. But what if but what if it turns out that a growing number of people in our country or in other countries don't actually want the fulfillment of those values? So if democracy is only good insofar as it leads to those liberal outcomes, then it may be the case that democracy won't produce those outcomes. Then does that mean democracy in a procedural sense isn't good um, if, if the two are tied together? Because it seems to me that in the U.S., you know, we could be in a situation where the foreseeable future, even putting aside Trump and the more um, fascist tendencies that he has that you highlight in your in your book and in your articles, putting that aside, the Republican Party more broadly, even if it gets rid of Trump, is illiberal in a certain set of ways. And, you know, I, I don't want to compare them necessarily to uh, Fidesz in, in Hungary and Viktor Orban, but some of the things that you talk about that are characteristic of illiberal and even fascist tendencies, are, you know, are there. Uh, whether it's hierarchy, anti-intellectualism, nostalgia for a mythic past, these various things that you highlight in your work as being core to fascist politics. So if more people vote for the Republican Party in the years and decades to come, then how, what would you feel about our democracy if that continues? Uh, well, so I, I expect there to be strong illiberal tendencies in any society. So I, I, I'm under no illusion that uh, <clears throat> that values of li freedom and equality are ones that are going to be universally shared because uh, there's a strong tendency for majorities to want to be dominant and to to impose their own value systems on others. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so that is the, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think what ultimately you want in a society, what I want in a society is a system that respects people's, uh, people's freedom to pursue their own individual paths uh, and which include pursued pursuing traditions like my Orthodox rel Jewish relatives. Uh, and uh, and uh, pursuing uh, pursuing paths that others might uh, might reject. So that's going to require uh, preventing a kind of tyranny of the majority situation uh, and liberal and liberal democracy. Can I can I ask Jason um, another question that that 
popped into my mind. You know, I, I know we're sort of bouncing back and forth between uh, the present and, and sort of your work. Um, what would you say? What what would you say, or would you say, there's a difference between uh, what you broadly characterize as fascism or fascist tendencies, which you said you know you you expected it to be in present in most societies, in most democratic societies, and what has also been termed reaction. Is there is there a difference between reactionaryism and fascism? I mean, again, I know in your book you you specify you know fascist modes of coming to power within it that perhaps are a, a superset of of fascism. But when we talk about this ever-present illiberalism, this this uh, you know, as you said, groups wanting to become dominant and and uh, uh, you know have their way in a society, are we are we talking about reaction in a way? So I see fascist politics as appealing to reactionary uh, tendencies or backlash tendencies against uh, against equality for minority groups. I think those reactionary those reactionary tendencies uh, can come from people who are not themselves fascists. Uh, what what uh, what what you see in fascist politics is a kind of grouping of all of them together. You get the 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 wealthy pe people to help you against the labor movement, the labor unions, or uh, or the uh, movements to do something about climate change. You get the uh, the Christian nationalists to help you. Uh, to support you uh, in the face of of uh, other religions or secularism or LGBT, uh, you got the white nationalists to help you. Uh, but each of those is subject to its own re reactionary up and downs. A fascist movement marshals those all against democracy itself, against the procedural aspect of democracy itself. Hmm. Well, I, I I mean. Um... I, I guess in the way, in very much the way we're seeing, we're seeing right now, right? I mean, uh, illiberal democracy, I think, should be distinguished ultimately from uh, from the kind of uh, we should never, you know, uh, we sh we our opponents are completely illegitimate and should never have power. Right. So that yeah, right. Because the 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 interesting thing uh, about the current moment, uh, we talk about it a lot on this on this uh, on this podcast, is you know. Obviously, in America, we are overcome by the Trump phenomenon and what it's doing to our politics, what it's doing to our discourse, what how it's transformed everything. I mean, he's a he has a demonic power of just dominating. So that's all we talk about is him. Um, but it's it's also fascinating how you know if you look across the West more broadly, you've seen you know even predating Trump, you know the rise of Silvio Berlusconi and Putin. And um, and then you know even across uh, the populist parties rising uh, across across Europe, and they seem to be happening all around the same time. Um, again, I, you've you've written at times that that all of these I, I guess you know have certain fascist tendencies. Um, do you do you have a, a sort of a theory of the the case of why that's happening now? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think uh, I think that the uh, the, so we're facing a moment like the late 20s, early 30s, the fascist internationale, these hyper-nationalist movements. I think there there are, as in the past, you do have strong reactions to increasing minority rights, um, but you also have collusion between these groups. I mean, Eduardo Bolsonaro is a friend of Donald Trump Jr. I mean, 
These are not separate and distinct movements. They're in conversation with each other. Uh, you have you have basically Putin can't the the efficacy and agency of Putin internationally cannot be uh, cannot be denied. I think. I mean, he's funding the far right movements in Europe that you're talking about. I mean, these were movements. I mean, the French far right, Greca, etc., has been around for a long time. But the the surge of the French far right. Uh, uh, into, uh, has been bankrolled. The surge of all of these far right movements has been bankrolled by Russian cash. So you have interest convergence between these different ultra nationalist movements. Uh, Putin sees sees a, a threat from democracy itself. Uh, part of the reason for the, well, just one, but certainly part of the reason of, of for the uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, and so, uh, so you have a sort of joint. Uh, joint support between these movements. Uh, you have a lot of uh, international. Uh, you, you have a lot of international wealth threatened by uh, by countries working together. So if you if you break down international rules, then then global capital can evade uh, evade evade that. Uh, and you have just a number of countries: Israel. India, Russia, that are you know that that are that are that are in ethno-nationalist modes have sort of uh, ethno-nationalist leaders and are benefiting from this attack on democracy worldwide. So that's one thing. Another thing is uh, uh, let's face it: distinct, clear failures of democratic governments in in our own country. The financial crisis. Uh, when, when uh, the the fall, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the failure of capitalism, like moving in neoliberalism as a substitute for uh, the Soviet system, uh, resulted in, in in catastrophes that were then uh, exploited by autocrats. And in our own country, the the uh, the um, the Iraq War and uh, and the corruption with the financial crisis uh, were. Were sort of stains on the face of uh, of doing things in the normal way. I mean, this is a prompt for Shadi, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> well, considering that those, it's a pretty profound set of elite failures, and I largely agree. And I'm glad that you emphasized the post 9/11 context and the Iraq War, and that suggests that. Um, because, you know, obviously, if people feel that elites have failed time and time again, they're going to try to consider alternatives, even if those alternatives are, quote unquote, bad or have very uh, disturbing elements to them. And I'm curious, to what extent, in light of those elite failures, do you today consider voting for Trump a legitimate response to a real and deep set? set of grievance that would have otherwise not been addressed. I mean, um, I supported Hillary and I was uh, I was distraught like most were when Trump won. You know, it was a surprise for for so many of us. Maybe I I emphasize respecting the legitimacy of Donald Trump afterwards. But certainly at the moment we were shocked. But if Hillary had won, there wouldn't have been really um, any inward looking aspects to the liberal left, the left of center or the Democratic Party, things would have been quote unquote normal and Hillary would have continued as part of that neoliberal elite that wasn't willing to question basic assumptions. 
I know there's a lot there, but I'm curious about how you would disentangle some of those aspects. Well, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016 and 2020. So so obviously I'm sympathetic with some of those aspects. Um, so uh, so I I'm I, I, I quite see that. I mean, I think I still, of course, supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. But one of the reasons that I very early on saw the attraction of Trump was for the reasons you said. I mean, not the attraction to me, but the attraction to others. In the first Republican uh, uh, debate, the, the first question Donald Trump was asked was, uh, "What? Uh, why are you Republican? Uh, you donated, I forgot the exact sum, $25,000 to Hillary Clinton or $5,000, I forget the exact sum. And he said, yeah, I donated Hillary Clinton so she would come to my wedding. I don't, I've donated to half the people <laughs> on the podium here. And I just panicked because I said, he's going to win. And, and from that point on, from the very first Republican primary, I told everyone around me and I wrote articles about how Donald Trump was going to win because that was a winning message. So uh, so if you look at my October 2015 piece in The New York Times, uh, Democracy and the Demagogue, uh, I, you know, it's about Trump saying he's going to win because he he's using this uh, he's using this he's using a set of tactics when people have lost faith with the establishment, which was a completely legitimate re reaction after the Obama administration's failure to prosecute people for the financial crisis and the Iraq war. So I I'm completely on board with that. Uh, I just think like uh, destroying the whole system uh, because you have a temper tantrum is not the right way to go. But it was obvious to me that Trump was appealing to that clear and legitimate and justified dissatisfaction with elite rule. Uh, and and uh, it was just like a mechanism that was going to uh, redound to make the elite even stronger. I think what's really important in today's context is to disaggregate the concept of the elite. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the Trump, Trump movement is always banging on about the elites, but they are the elites. They're the wealthy elites. They all, I mean, I went to SUNY Stony Brook. I'm a man of the people compared to, compared <laughs> to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. I mean, Ted Cruz is my age. He got into Princeton. He was a top student at Princeton. I was, I was, you know, scrubbing, scrubbing the bottom of buses, uh, putting my way through, through state university. Uh, you know, the, these are the financial elite backing these people. Uh, and they're the financial elite, uh, and they're uh, and you don't turn to the financial elite uh, to uh, to get you to 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 get revenge on the financial elite. But you know the 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 I think the 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 twist in Shadi's question, and I think this is what we're really grappling with today. To now really bring us back to you know the first question of where we're where we're at right now is is this question of you know uh, democratic. Legitimacy, and you know, I, I, you know, you answered as a citizen that you know the 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 law uh, should be followed, uh, and you know if their crimes were committed, do it, uh, let the heavens fall, uh, you know, justice be done, um, and that's fair. Uh, but the the one of the things that 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 seems to be emerging at this point is a kind of broader discourse. Uh, that is tied to fascism, which is, I think, why Shadi and I, you know, discussed last week, and we'd love to have you on to discuss this, is this idea that that um, Trump represents a certain kind of unique evil uh, that is, you know, popularly de uh, described as fascism, that um, in a way ought to exempt him 
or we need to figure out any way to exempt him from uh, the democratic process. That there's something almost inherently delegitimizing, uh, delegitimizing about the essence of Trump and the Trump phenomenon. Um, and I mean, I don't know if you'd agree, but it seems to me that that a lot of the popular discourse is really tied around that. I think a lot of the optimism about locking the man up uh, is that this will somehow uh, prevent him from running for president. And that's actually not true from what I can tell. I know it hasn't been tested, but, you know, Eugene Debs was uh, was a felon and he ran and, and got 3.2 percent uh, at, at some point uh from prison. So, you know, again, it's it's not clear to me that that would work, but but even deeper whether the, you know, it would work from a um, mechanistic standpoint, it's this question of you know, uh, legitimacy of trumpism within a democratic uh, context. Now again, you've said that, you know, we've always had this sort of stuff in our society. It's almost inherent to, you know, modern democracy to have these forces. Um, do you do you think though that 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 do you still think that 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 Trumpism, you know, is potentially legitimate in the broad, like, uh, not necessarily liberal democratic frame uh, that Shadi espouses, sort of broad democracy, um, functional democracy, uh, instrumental democracy, um, procedural democracy? Or is this a force that we really need to be taking as, you know, outside of the scope of of normal and that these are emergency measures and really we need to do everything to prevent this from happening again. Well, I'll just add that Sam Harris got into a dust up, you know, and it might be relevant just to mention it here for, for listeners. And I think he captures a certain kind of this sentiment. And I think that, well, you know, people weren't fair to what he actually said and may have distorted his comments, but I think he, reflects this basic sense that I think, as he put it, if an asteroid is on its way to hitting Earth, you take extraordinary measures if you really think that it could be an extinction level event. And then you can justify things that would otherwise not be considered normal in the democratic process. So for example, suppressing news about Hunter Biden's laptop, if that had come out right before the 2020 election, it could have shifted tens of thousands of voters, and that would have been enough to tip the balance uh, in a different direction. Um, so I just wanted to mention that as, you know, one one potential answer to the question. So so to me, I'm still very angry about the failure to prosecute the people involved in the torture regime of 9-11 and the failure to prosecute people responsible for the financial crisis. I think there was no excuse for that. Uh, I think it was a failure that led to, to Trump, honestly. And uh, and we just repeat that by not prosecuting Trump. Uh, I don't, you know, I, when you ask me about, you know, how would this be strategically good, uh, that's beyond my, what I do. Um, I just think it's the right thing to do. Uh, the people responsible for the financial crisis should have been brought to justice. Anyone torturing people, uh, and the name of the United States should have been brought to justice. And anyone who tries to overthrow the United States in a coup should be brought to justice. Now, would it would it help? Um, uh, probably not, because the Republican Party has within it now a substantial anti-democratic movement. Uh, and uh, and when it comes to anti-democratic movements, it's it's nothing like an asteroid. It's just let's do what Germany does. You you know you cannot run as a political party if you're anti-democratic. And they ban political parties. So you just take people who who go on about non-existent voter fraud, 
And you say, you know, you can't do that. You're threatening your capacity to run. And uh, Germany is the healthiest liberal democracy in the world right now. That's what they do. <laughs> you know, AfD is a far right party. Uh, and with with some fascist elements, but they have to be committed to the to procedural democracy in shoddy sense. Otherwise, they they can't be part of the process. And I think it should be no different here. Um, whether prosecuting Trump would help, I don't know. Yeah. So if one argues, if one argues that the Republican Party is currently anti democratic and not committed to even procedural democracy. And I think there, there's at least some evidence to suggest that a big portion of the Republican Party could be described that way. So that there's a danger that if we use that rubric, we would we might have to ban the Republican Party from participating and then we wouldn't really have a democracy uh, or or the democracy would would um, would come under uh, it. I can't even imagine. So I'm, I'm having trouble thinking through like what the actual implications of that would be um so how would how would that work in practice if we take that seriously but also who decides because ultimately some of this has to do with subjective assessments about where you draw the line where do we actually say this is the limit and ultimately it's imperfect human beings who have political or ideological or partisan leanings one way or the other who are going to have to decide and there is no one who's neutral in our society, and especially so since we're incredibly polarized, there is everyone's bringing in their own subjective biases. So what is this third party umpire that would actually decide which party would be banned? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you raise great philosophical questions, Shadi. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> I don't have to worry about the practicalities. <laughs> but uh, but I think you're raising the postmodern dilemma. Uh, there's no such thing as standing outside politics. Uh, we are all subject to bias and political partisanship. Uh, so there's there's no uh, what we're going to need. I mean, I think I think. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've tackled some of the issues about the postmodern dilemma that you raise in my book, How Propaganda Works. Uh, you just have to, uh, you know, uh, you're going to, you, you have to be aware that you are fallible uh, and you're going to have to make a call. I mean, I think, I think like centrist Democrats or, you know, Rockefeller Republicans are pretty much, uh, you know, are, 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 uh, we can re recognize that these are all within legitimate, uh, a legitimate political sphere. We can recognize that social conservatives, you know, someone like David French, who's who's a social conservative, but is very much uh, committed to the democratic process uh, and uh, and and the system we have. Uh, you're going to have to make those calls. The who decide things is that that is the postmodern dilemma. But you can't. Uh, and and you're absolutely right. There's no such thing as neutrality. In my forthcoming book, I have a chapter called Neutrality, which is arguing that there is no such thing as neutrality. So uh, so there is no neutrality. Uh, everything is to some degree political. Um, but we should recognize that we've got to make these judgments anyway. And some of them are going to be correct and some of them are not going to be correct. And that's just just life. But uh, no anti-democratic party should be allowed to run. And if that means banning the Republican Party, that's what ought to happen. Uh, but hopefully what would happen instead is, uh, and I, what I expect would happen, is that you'd get 
the people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton, who went to these fancy universities, uh, uh, like uh, to the one I teach at, uh, you would get them to to just switch their tune and be committed to democracy, recognizing that the system wouldn't allow them to run otherwise. The 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 challenges, though, um, again, it's 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 you know, I mean, these are philosophy questions. We're, neither Shadi and I are, are are particularly practical people either on this matter. It's it's um uh it's it's the question of of incentives in a democracy and and the whole question of representation. You know, I mean. Is there, do you have a, a, a theory uh, of, you know, can, can democracy function with an illiberal polity, I guess, is, is the question. Or, I mean, I, certainly it can. I mean, in a procedural sense, it can. But, but uh, you know, do you have a, okay, how about this? Do you have a theory of progress then that, that where, does, where does liberalism grow and thrive and, 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 and how does it, it, it grow and thrive, you know, throughout, throughout a period of time? Especially if, as you've if, as you've said earlier, even in our conversation here, that you know these forces are uh, you know which which you term fascist have been you know part and parcel of our society from the founding, uh, of American history from the founding, and yet and yet uh, you know I, I I suspect you'd argue that that uh, you know the country has changed, it has evolved, and so again you know what I'm getting at here is is a question of legitimacy. Uh, as espoused through uh, democratic principles, uh, questions of representation, because, you know, uh, to a certain extent, um, obviously, you want politicians to uh, uh, take to, you know, be able to uh, see past the people they represent and, and you know, uh, sort of uh, in, a, in a healthy democracy, represent something bigger than just the, the people that they represent. But as we saw with, uh, with Liz Cheney, uh, just this week, uh, the representatives rejected her. And so what do we do about that element of it? You know, I, again, this is kind of a big sprawling question, but it, it, it ties into, again, where's liberalism, where's progress, and how does that square with democracy and representation? Right. So great set of questions. This is what democratic political philosophy is all about. Uh, and the classic answers uh, are I mean I mean what, what I try to do and how propaganda works is argue that you can't really get liberalism unless you have substantive material equality. The sort of democratic political philosophy dating back to Rousseau argues that that uh, that uh, substantive inequality, resentment. When you have the conditions for resentment, then you have people. Uh, then, then it's going to be impossible to have a liberal democracy. So you have to have means in place for people not to be susceptible to politics of resentment, to politics that makes them uh, uh, resentful, to, to, to politics that will allow them to aim at a scapegoat and feel anger at a scapegoat. So I take it one of the great questions of democratic political philosophy is how do you get people to be immune to, to the desire to scapegoat others? Um, and uh, the various answers that have been given, uh, one is substantive material equality, uh, two is substantive social equality, uh, three is education. So, in, uh, so, uh, so that's no surprise, of course, that if you want to destroy democracy, you go after the education system. You try to destroy public education. Because from Rousseau to, to Du Bois and Dewey, democratic political philosophers are going to tell you that a general education system... Uh, that 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 gives people a sort of uh, 
general understanding of themselves and others and uh, and a feeling of co-citizenship is essential for a democracy. And that's why uh, the Republicans are targeting the public education system. One one thing just to jump in there, though, and, and it's that uh, especially on education, I mean, I take your point on that. Um, but the the one of one of you know one can trace uh, a line, and I don't want to be exceedingly unfair, but to a lot of Rousseau's ideas, to the kinds of uh, non democratic despotisms uh, of the twentieth century, uh, communism, Soviet Union, um, and and ultimately you know this fight, uh, this fight between uh, radical redistribution and egalitarianism. Um, and basically the forces of reaction, uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's oversimplifying, but that, that is one of the big dramas of Weimar Germany. It's, it's, it's that competition be- between them. So again, you know, how do you, how do you situate uh, the role of democracy in that? Because one can, one can arguably take that Rousseauian line, uh, you know, to, to a kind of grim set of conclusions and, and again, sort of put to the side, uh, you know, the question of, of legitimate representation of people as they are. Specifically, that's why I'm latching on to the question of education. I mean, education and, and, and forming people's opinions was a big deal in, uh, in communist indoctrination. Okay, so l- let's be clear about what aspect of Rousseau Benjamin Constant is criticizing in his famous essay, mm-hmm. uh, The Liberty of the Ancients and the Liberty of the Moderns. Yep. He's criticizing Rousseau for the concept of the general will. Uh, so I, I did not appeal to Rousseau in my answer to you to defend in I didn't appeal to the general will yeah. uh, as an aspect of Rousseau that I was defending. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rousseau's particular take uh, on uh, how to be free yet be in civil society was that you have to adopt the general will. So if if everyone decides after being educated a certain way, uh, uh, not that Rousseau was for public education, he was for taking, but he was, he recognized the centrality of education. Everyone's supposed to be educated. Well, I won't go into a meal. It's a wacky book, but <laughs> he recognized, but, uh, but, uh, but Rousseau, the, the aspect of Rousseau that Benjamin Constant critiques uh, for being, uh, being sort of despotism uh, and, and Isaiah Berlin as well is, is, is the, uh, is the general will aspect. Uh, that we're all supposed to take on the will of the majority, uh, and that's the only way to live in, in civil society. Uh, I think that's problematic. I agree with critiques of Rousseau there. But uh, but you can read Rousseau, Discourse on Inequality, Emile, you can see him as piecing together the elements of the answer to the question you asked me. And the question you asked me was, how do you make people uh, immune to the kind of scapegoating politics that undergirds uh, anti-democratic, majoritarian, illiberal movements. Um, so you know uh, you can. So you have an edu- You need an education system. You need substantive material e- equality. You need people to see to to form common interests. But I agree that you know the general will is not something uh, that should uh, that should guide us uh, as a chief value. So, Jason, you, so you, you've you've said that we need to avoid the politics of resentment, scapegoating. We have to move towards an ideal of co-citizenship and common interests. And I wanted to tie this to aspects of your arguments about fascism 
and the subtitle of your of your book on fascism is the politics of us versus them. And I think that I think it's fair to say that you've been criticized a bit, uh, perhaps more than a bit, on Twitter and elsewhere for maybe uh, the overuse of the term fascism. And not to go into the semantics too much, but um, if part of the definition of fasc- fascist mode, the fascist mode of politics is is that it's about the demarcation between the us and the them. One might argue, and I don't, you know, we don't have to go into Carl Schmitt and the friend-enemy distinction and all of that, but at least some of that is relevant insofar as in very polarized societies where the stakes seem existential, one could argue that much of politics is the politics of us versus them. And it's not just the Republican Party or the Trump supporters who resort to this mode of politics, but also liberals, leftists, and Democrats in terms of seeing Republicans writ large or the 74 million Trump supporters as somehow being beyond the pale or that they are irredeemable or racist or that there's no such thing as a good Trump voter, especially if he runs in 2024 and if Americans decide again through the existing rules to vote Trump back into office, I think you'll hear a lot more of this. So um, so I just wonder about, like, if we're saying that f- fascist politics is about us versus them, aren't we overusing the word, the, that the phrase? Aren't we okay. devaluing? The, the, I, I know there's a, yeah, we're, we're also devaluing the word fascist because in that sense, everything could be a fascist mode of politics, right? Yeah, so that's not a correct understanding of my work. The uh, the politics of us versus them was added by Penguin Random House, not me. <laughs> the uh, the uh, the it's uh, I I'm very clear in the book that the us and them for it to be fascist has to be based on ethnicity, nationality, religion, something like that, not class, for example. So communism is a is a kind of us versus them politics, but based on class. But that is not fascism at all. Um, so, uh, so similarly, an us versus them based on partisan affiliation wouldn't be fascist because it's not ethno-nationalist. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on religion. So, uh, so there's a few key features, national origin, ethnicity, religion, that it's acceptable to draw an us versus them, uh, that them distinction, that, that, that is a fascist us versus them distinction. It's, it's really Schmidt's, uh, you know, I know you asked me not to go to Carl Schmidt, but, you know, you know, you were throwing that softball out there. Uh, so, uh, so, uh. So, you know, I think take it the idea is the way to create a national ethnic identity is by creating an enemy and defining your ethnic identity in terms of them. So that's the kind of fascist process I mean, the kind of thing you see with the Hindutva movement in India with uh, with Aryans, with the construction of the concept of Aryan under uh, uh, in Nazi Germany, um, that this that ethnic Othering, uh, yeah. The the uh, but but Trump supporters it, it, are disproportionately white. They're disproportionately Christian and conservative Christian evangelical. Um, you know, we can say that there are religious and ethnic components to Trump supporters. That it 
it isn't primarily about class. It is clearly partisan, but it's not just partisan. There's a deeper ideological divide that that divides the us and the them in American politics from a left or liberal standpoint. Um, so I, I know that's maybe stretching it a little bit, but I mean, I'm just curious how you would respond to that, especially if there is a growing trend in the Democratic Party, the hyper woke wing, let's say, that does actually see whiteness, though specifically the whiteness of Trump supporters as being inherent to the irredeemability of Trumpism. Well, I think whiteness, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get into one of those mass misunderstandings that people are doing nowadays with, with uh, whenever anyone discusses whiteness. But uh, whiteness is, uh, as a sort of construct, uh, can be critiqued because you can say, you know, it's fine for people to say I'm half French and half German. It's fine for people to be like, I'm Scotch-Irish. But whiteness as a concept is problematic. Uh, and and I get that, and I'm sympathetic to that. Um, but uh, but so that's that's I can see critiques of whiteness. But when it comes to Trump supporters, I mean, bear in mind you're talking to someone who has numerous Orthodox Jewish Trump supporting relatives. <laughs> so uh, you know, and they're not pro-Trump because uh, because you know he's he's Christian or something like that. They're pro-Trump because of. A set of of uh, because they're part of a large coalition of distinct of people with very distinct interests that all have a kind of interest convergence. Um, I don't think that there's uh, I don't think that there's there are black Trump supporters because of patriarchy uh, or wealth. Um, so I don't think it makes any sense at all to uh, to uh, look at Trump. Um, I mean, I think whiteness is important here. Whiteness as a as a sort of constructed, uh, as a constructed concept is, of course, crucial to American history and understanding the appeal to many people of Trumpism. But uh, but the Trump movement is not uh, is 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 not it's not um, you know there are, there are plenty of people with the same background as Trump supporters, the same ethnic background, uh, the same tradition, but aren't Trump supporters. And I don't think there's anyone who uh, thinks otherwise. So let me. Let yeah, me, yeah. So well, go, go ahead, wait, Demir. If I can, yeah. I, there's just one on this on this thought on how we think about the fascist mode of politics. One more thing, and then we can maybe uh, dig a little bit deeper and and not worry too much about the word fascism. But um, so in in your in your book, you I think there's seven or eight key components. I mentioned some of them earlier. And in addition, appeals to the heartland, dismantling of public welfare, unreality, victimhood, so on and so forth. And there's, you know, eight or nine of them total. And you do say, you do qualify that individually, some of those things might be legitimate and by themselves, that would not constitute a fascist mode of politics. The danger is when those things are combined and exactly. um, the sum is greater. I forget. I always forget that saying the sum is greater than the parts that are part right, of whole, it, whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I, I do. So I, there's one particular aspect of this that I worry about, because when you do talk about Hungary and Poland specifically, instead of focusing on how they make democratic competition unfair, 
you focus on things such as the banning of abortion in Poland, and you do mention also the fundamental law in Hungary. And a couple examples of that, just so we all know what we're talking about. Uh, the fundamental law says, for example, um, that Hungarians made our country, quote unquote, Hungarians made country a part of Christian Europe 1,000 years ago. Quote unquote, our people has over the centuries defended Europe in a series of struggles. Quote unquote, the role, uh, the role of Christianity is crucial in preserving nationhood and that it is important to promote and safeguard our heritage. Those are a few things that are in the Hungarian fundamental law. My concern is that by highlighting that as part of a broader discussion of fascist politics, it seems legitimate to me that a particular people or country could say that their Christian identity is important to them and that, and also other things that they want to protect the institution of marriage, encourage um, higher rates of fertility. These are all things that are mentioned in the fundamental law, the protection of families in particular. Isn't there a risk that by highlighting that and saying and implying that it's bad or that it's on the pathway potentially to a fascist sort of politics that we're basically telling conservative Christians or those who may want to restrict abortion for legitimate theological reasons. We don't have to like it or agree with it, but that is a theological position that's long been in the mainstream of Christianity, Judaism, and maybe to a lesser extent, Islam. So I'm just curious how you would respond to that specifically, because that made me a little bit nervous when I was reading that. Sure, right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic. You have got to make a distinction between the new right and the old right. And the, the what you're referring to, the social conservatism, that's the old right. Uh, but we have this with uh, we have this with, uh, with when we look back at European fascism. How do you distinguish morally and politically between the old right that sort of allies with the new fascist right, anti-democratic right, uh, the old right that is sort of like coming from the old school Catholic Church, uh, from the uh, and and they they then they then help and aid the new right. The sort of anti-democratic, we're going to take over and by force and violence do this. So, uh, so you're so it's always the case that there's this sort of shady dividing line between the old right that partners with fascist with with fascist leaders and movements, and the new right. And when we look back in the past at Horty and and other leaders who you know maybe Franco, you know you can argue whether he's old right or tilts into he's certainly a dictator. Uh, he was certainly a dictator, but uh, but uh, you know you you have a divide you know you you have a difficult decision between uh, what's between the old right and the new right, and when the old right decides that it needs fascists to get their project done, that's when they're morally and politically culpable for fascism. Uh, when the old right says uh, instead says, okay, we're social conservatives, we're not going to permit these things from happening uh, uh, in our domain. Well, as a liberal Democrat, I'd say, you know, you have every right to do that within your social circle, within your, you have every right to condemn people for for, for uh, not adhering to your set of ways, not going to religious worship on, on uh, 
on the appointed day or whatever, but you don't have a right in, in a liberal democracy to impose that on others. Um, that's because I'm a liberal Democrat. Um, but so, so uh, you know, you're drawing attention. So I, I think I think Orban, I don't think Orban at all cares about <laughs> about Christian identity. Or I mean, I think he cares about power and corruption and, money, and, yeah. and domination and money. Exactly. So uh, so he's using the old right. Um, so but you're right. The old right in and of itself is not is not fascist. The old right can be procedurally democratic. Um, but when they start, you know, as in Hungary, like going after the free press, dismantling the press, using the courts against the, the, the administration's opponents, uh, uh, massively gerrymandering, uh, uh, you know, you, you know, Hungary is a situation where when you dominate the press, uh, so many Hungarians, especially outside Budapest, only speak Hungarian. So when the entire, you know, Hungarian press is is controlled by friends of Viktor Orban, it's just very hard to get your message out. Um, so, uh, so you know, uh, that said, your original question is, what do I think about the old right? <laughs> I think I think the old right shouldn't impose its ways on on others uh, because I'm a liberal Democrat. Um, and uh, and they're to be conceptually distinguished from a fascist movement that uses violence uh, and and uh, anti-democratic, clearly anti-democratic means to impose essentially the agenda of the old right on the country for the benefit of the furtherance of power of the fascist leaders. Um, so, uh, yeah, but, but you're right. I can work with that. Know, conceptual well, so actually, Shadi, it's it's. I was going to ask a, a similar question, but actually, this is a, a really good setup because I, let's not dwell on fascism. But I, I but I, I think some of these dynamics are really interesting and important. So I, you know, in my day job, I I'm in the Balkans right now. I I do a lot of work on the Balkans. Um, you know, there you guys probably not following it, but there's there was a dust up between Serbia and Kosovo. Nearly came to shots two weeks ago. It may kick off again in two weeks. Don't worry about the details. But, you know, these sorts of dynamics are, are, are serious and I take them seriously. So I don't want to sound glib in any of, of, of what, what, what I say about this sort of stuff. But the, the problem of ethno-nationalism, which I think a lot of liberal Democrats, and I'd be even more specific about it, liberal Democrat Americans um, sort of can't deal with, is that... Um, I don't know, it underpins so much of uh, European citizenship, statehood, especially in Central and Eastern Europe and my part of the world. Um, and, you know, I, as a broadly uh, non-fascist person, uh, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for it, yet I, in my work, I have to deal with, you know, politics as they are, especially in this part of the world. That's, that's what a lot of this stuff is. Um, so I guess my, my, my question to you, Jason, is something along the lines of, uh, even just now when you're, uh, replying to Shadi, you said, you know, the old right, uh, can do its old right things circumscribed within its community, you said, um, I think one of the interesting yeah. things, and going back to the the, the question of, of what's triggered a lot of this, in my mind, uh, reactionary sentiment across the West, has been um, the moving forward of uh, a certain set of liberal democratic ideals uh, 
entrenched in um, institutions, in this case, the European Union, uh, that are perceived to not have that much democratic legitimacy. Now, of course, it has democratic legitimacy. There are elections for it. They're not terribly um, well attended across Europe, but it's it exists. There are procedures for it, but it's also a very technocratic and 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 um, uh, supra political set of institutions that tries to impose a set of liberal values, stressing liberal more than democratic, on a, a whole set of countries, and you're getting this kind of set of reactions which are rooted in ethno-nationalism, which, however distasteful and quite frankly dangerous it can be and has proven to be uh, in the course of the 20th century and the 21st century, um, nevertheless is the foundation for statehood for a lot of these places. So I don't know, what do you make of that? You know, I mean, one can still identify troubling things. We can say uh, bad, dangerous, murderous, war is horrible. You know, we need to do everything to avoid it. But at the same time, even the, the, the stuff that Shadi was citing from your book just now, um, it strikes me it's one of those things that, that, that Americans in general who aren't really have no experience apart from, you know, uh, the kind of blood and soil racism of hard-bitten racists. But apart from that, it's, it's different from what, what it is in Europe because it's, it's not foundational to the, to the state in this country. The state is founded on different principles. So, you know, I, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to your analytical pose, uh, positioning, uh, approach to, to writing about these things, identifying them, uh, categorizing them, naming them. Um, but I also detect that there is a certain, you know, I mean, you, you said earlier, you, you have commitments to liberalism. How do you how do you how do you square that in a situation like Europe? Let's leave America aside for now, where you have a, a state tradition that's based in a lot of these things that 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 uh, that you you know you you I think you you came pretty close to saying that they shouldn't be they shouldn't legitimately govern a state. Yeah. So so first of all, let me say that I agree with your analysis of Europe of the situation. I don't necessarily think. I think there are parallels one can draw to the United States, but I won't do that now. I think, you know, you've described why Europe is such a fecund home of fascism. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, so I'm staring right now at my German passport, <laughs> and uh, and I come, I'm German Jewish. I mean, I'm Polish Jewish on one side, but I'm Jewish on the other. And German Jews are precisely the minority whose role is to push liberalism, is to say, we are not incorporated into this idea of nation, uh, but we are citizens too. Uh, and we belong, even though we don't fit your model of citizenship. And German Jews always did push liberalism as the solution to their existence in Europe. And I, you know, my own identity is formed by a longstanding, by this longstanding tradition. I mean, my my great grandfather was the cantor of the largest congregation in Germany uh, before World War II in Berlin, and it was a liberal synagogue that that had uh, an organ, which was considered sacrilegious at the time. But the point was that he was trying to sort of bring um, the minority into, uh, you know, share some practices, diverge in others. Uh, and that's a negotiation. 
as a, you know, uh, as a child of European Jewry, that is central to me and central to my identity. Uh, and it's also uh, the minority group that kicked off uh, genocidal fascism for so doing. So, uh, so my commitment is, you know, to make room for the ever-growing Muslim minority uh, in, in, in Europe. I don't think we'll ever again have a large Jewish minority, but I think we'll have a Muslim minority. Uh, and it an area to of important. total agreement, I think. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I just yeah. wanted to, I wanted to highlight for our listeners, like I think that here is where there is very strong overlap when it comes to um, accommodating Muslim minorities in Europe. I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's that is what I see. One of my life's political missions as being. I see Europe being. I see something similar in Europe. Uh, with uh, with the far right reacting to Muslims as they once did to Jews. And I see my role in European politics as calling attention to that and reminding them what happened last time. So uh, so um, so that's my reaction. I think it's it's a similar thing we're seeing. I'm, I, I have great worries about uh, Muslim uh, minority populations in Europe. There's no way you're going to move Muslims out of Europe. <laughs> uh, it's not going to happen. They're home there. Uh, one of the great things Angela Merkel did was take one million Syrian refugees, and uh, and there uh, and we're going to have to have that. You know, Europe is going to have to face face its ethno nationalist demons, but with a a different minority population, and it better have a different result than last time. Uh, and I'll also add a key thing here is to recognize that ethno-nationalism is new. And nationalism is a very recent thing. Uh, that's why I wouldn't say that fascism dates back so long because fascism requires nationalism. But, you know, nationalism is sort of, you know, philosophically a 19th century construct. I mean, so would you, would you argue um, that, call it liberal progress, if I could use that word, uh, and I think many, you know, European federalists would make that case is a process of overcoming this tendency. That is to say, um, well, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I mean, obviously, I agree that nationalism is a modern phenomenon. You know, I mean, theories of nationalism uh, try and 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 you know either put it under as a as a phenomenon of the industrial revolution is more modern than that. Others argue it's you know has ancient roots to, to, to more tribal identities, but fair enough. I think we agree that, that what we, what, when you and I talk about nationalism, we're talking about something fairly modern. Um, nevertheless, uh, I mean, is that it's the project powerful. to overcome it? Is, is, is that the, the project to overcome that? And then, you know, then this is where I, I sort of wanted to yeah, I don't, I don't this. want to say that because then I'm going to get my clock cleaned on email. Well, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, the reason I just want to push, let me just say one thing and then, you know, go go with it wherever you like and, and, and qualify however much you want. But the question to me, ultimately, on this comes down to the question of citizenship. Um, and it's a complicated one because citizenship itself creates a group of, again, I, I take your point, your book is not about broadly us versus them, but it creates an us and a them. By very by its very nature, immigration is uh, one of those things that actually uh, demands either acceptance of the them, uh, assimilation of the them into your us group. So you know maybe another prompt for you is how do you feel about the modern again very modern concept of citizenship? Is it unjust? Well, I don't think the concept of citizenship is 
is modern. I mean, Plato, recall in Book Eight of the Republic, one of his many arguments against democracy is that it will make citizens and non-citizens into a kind of equal. <laughs> so he saw that the democracy's values led to equality between men and women, between, uh, between of course, Plato thought that women should rule as well, but between citizen and non-citizen, that's one of his objections to democracy. So uh, so I think there is a, a an inevitable push towards equality, uh, towards seeing humans as joint, the fate of humanity is jointly interlocked in the set of values that I hold dear. Um, but I don't mean to diminish the importance of national traditions. I don't mean to diminish my, 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 uh, my relative's religiosity is important to my identity. Um, I'm, you know, I, I go to synagogue on high holidays. My kids go to Hebrew school, you know, uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, I, I think it's a choice that should be available to be religious. Uh, and to have national traditions, uh, to have uh, languages, you know, when languages go extinct, ways of life go extinct. Uh, in that in that sense, uh, I'm much less, you know, like I react with horror at, at enforced, you know, enforced joint national, you know, enforced joint traditions to erase distinct identities. So, so there's great value in difference. Um, it just can't uh, it, it, uh, and, and I can even see a kind of civic nationalism. Um, but the, the, there's, there's a version of nationalism, the kind of what we've been calling ethno-nationalism in our conversation, uh, that, uh, that I think undergirds fascism. Uh, and it is, it, it is sometimes, you know, nationalism can sometimes be, be, uh, healthy and it's a, it's a, Fanon emphasized, it's central to anti-colonialist projects. Um, but uh, but when it's the nationalism of the dominant group and you have minorities present uh, in, in the nation and the only way to get rid of them is to move them, as would happen with the Muslim minority, minorities in Europe, uh, then you have uh, a situation that is uh, where you're just going to have to adopt liberal ideals as, as a nation. You're just going to have to incorporate those groups as a nation, as equal co-citizens. And the fate of my family uh, stands as a warning if you don't. So, so to put a finer point on this, I'm curious how where immigrants who are not currently citizens of a country fit in, because as you mentioned, Muslim minorities in Europe, um, by and large, are citizens, and the ones who aren't citizens are legal permanent residents or or, uh, or temporary residents. Uh, you know, on a to, you know, that that's the kind of constellation of options there. So, yeah, if someone's a citizen or a permanent resident, they have rights that, you know, are somewhat more difficult to take away. But people who are not yet citizens and who are trying to immigrate to a particular country, they I, I'm just wondering, does the us versus them apply in that context or does it just apply to those within the borders of a particular country, because every every nation restricts some kind of immigration. Um, there's, I mean, there's no country that I'm aware of that is open in, in any kind of full sense of the word. So presumably it's legitimate to limit immigration and not go down the route of hyper-nationalism or fascist modes of politics, right? 
or how, how would you, where would you put the, where's the line for you on that? Because let's say, let's say for example, that America accepts 500,000 immigrants in a given year. If someone advocates lowering that number to 300,000, that he's, he or she is an immigration restrictionist, but 300,000 is still a large number of immigrants. It should be legitimate, I would think, in a democracy to debate relative levels of acceptable immigration. Sure, absolutely. I mean, those are the kind of practical questions about how, uh, you know, well, when I talk about immigrant, when I debate immigration, uh, you know, I expect economic arguments and, you know, but what I reject is arguments about how this will this will water down the traditions of our of our ethno of our of our national identities. Will bring in Muslims. It'll bring in non Christians. Those arguments I regard as uh, I don't give them weight. Uh, arguments like this is just not economically feasible. Uh, this is uh, to the detriment of of the to, to the economic and material detriment of the people here. Uh, those are legitimate arguments. Uh, that carry sway. Uh, uh, so, you know, we can absolutely have those discussions. What is a legitimate uh, immigration number of immigrants? You know, I mean, Bernie Sanders was immigration restrictionist, for goodness sake. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so, but he wasn't a long time ago. He, he can't get away with that now in the current Democratic Party, though. I mean, so that's also like something has shifted fundamentally there, I would I would say. But well, well I, I think I think the economic he was an economic immigration restrictionist. And, and that's a that's a legitimate Position. What's not legitimate is like we're going to reject these immigrants for for uh, for uh, for you know ethno nationalist reasons. The kind of thing you have in our bond. And finally, I should say that I tilt towards a non-immigrationist side for moral and ethical reasons, where we have an obligation towards countries that we've immiserated via our policies or via our relative wealth or via our effects on the climate. And uh, those are moral and political duties. And, you know, people can argue the practicalities all they want. But in the end, I'm a philosopher. And and I think moral and ethical duties are uh, very important. <laughs> and so I think we have a moral and ethical duty uh, over and above, uh, over and above uh, practical issues uh, to take large amounts of immigrants. And so does every first world country. So, Jason, there's a, there's a, it's a good sort of pivot uh, sort of the question that, uh, you know, sort of wanted to maybe uh, culminate this conversation on. Um, you mentioned uh, several times in the course of this, you know, you, you see yourself as a philosopher, uh, but you're uh, you're a public intellectual. You uh, philosophize in the public square. Um, and, you know, earlier on, you said looking at Europe today, um, given your identity, your family's history, uh, the tragedies of the 20th century, the Holocaust, um, you see... Uh, uh, Muslims being the basically the uh, the next scapegoat potentially, and so maybe you could say a little bit about about um, how you view the role of ideas in society. Um, what and and what is your then personal responsibility? How do you see your 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 yourself, uh, your responsibilities, your 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 role um, in in the world, in politics, and in history? Uh, yeah, man, that's yeah. a that's a broad enough question to sort of kick us off on this on this on this tangent. 
<laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I was a uh, a sort of devoted analytic philosopher, but I was because I believed, philosopher of language, I was because I believed that speech was democratically important. And so understanding speech was something that was important to do. Uh, and in the sort of, I would say the latter half of my career, I've sort of said, okay, it's time to move from sort of perfecting the techniques of philosophy to thinking about, uh, to thinking, to using philosophy and using it to think about uh, uh, certain problems like propaganda, uh, fascism, uh, the, the, these, uh, these, uh, you know, the, the democracy, um, and and these are these are problems which can't be located in a discipline. They're too large. They have too many dimensions. Uh, they have economic dimensions. They have uh, they have historical dimensions. So uh, so it necessitates a broader reach. Um, I've nevertheless thought that uh, maybe philosophy coming from it to these problems as a philosopher um, could be useful, um, which means for me simplifying things, conceptualizing them in a way that can be broken down into pieces and sort of uh, given as a, as, a, as a tidy philosophical concept, which is something very different from what historians do. Historians look... Uh, historians are rooted in an era, rooted in a, in, in a part of the world. Um, philosophers, we generalize. We have these sort of general structures. And I've tried to sort of take the general structure and, 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 uh, and inform it, I guess, with my uh, set of values that come from my very particular past as the child of two Holocaust survivors. Um, so, so I think my role is to do, is to bring both uh, you know, what I can, I think we're all doing that, bring what we can to uh, and to the sort of historical role that our particular situa situationality <laughs> uh, in the world uh, uh, gives us a perspective to address. For me, for me it's, you know, minority, you know, what can happen to minorities in the face of ethno-nationalism? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to bring a kind of philosophical, general perspective to that issue. Who do you see as your audience as you do this? I mean, you know, what's the mechanism of change on this? I mean, there's a there's an assumption, I guess, of of broad democratization, of people becoming aware and taking your ideas on, internalizing them, you know, getting the values into their bloodstream in a way, and and then they act on them. Is that is that part of the the sort of theory of change? Sure. No, no, I want to just get it right. <laughs> I just want to get it right. That's that's my ethic: is getting it right, admitting when I'm wrong, like getting a structure. That's my training as a philosopher. What we do in philosophy is we like give a concept that's inadequate to the more complex reality we're dealing with: truth, knowledge, the good, justice, injustice, and then we deal with counterexamples, and then we adjust in a process Rawls calls reflective equilibrium to, uh, to, to, to give our theory more structure. And I want to get it right, which is why these questions of strategy are, you know, not the ones I'm expert on. I, w I want to describe the sort of far-right structure, we anti-democratic structure we see. I want to give it flesh. I want to give notions like propaganda flesh and, and explain how they work. Uh, and then I want to have those 
abstract constructs confronted con- confronted with reality. Um, and I and you know I take it that my job is if people look back, you know, to say, okay, you know, he got it uh, mostly right. That's my hope. And we would be uh, remiss if we didn't mention that y- you are a pretty controversial figure on on Twitter. And you have you you I mean you you've come to use Twitter quite a bit. I remember there was an article some time back about how there's a number of prominent intellectuals or Yale professors who have really um, embraced Twitter as a medium. So it's not only you, um, but you've come under criticism for. Um, getting in, you know, certain combative fights on Twitter with various people. And um, and I'm just curious, you know, reflecting on on becoming, you know, not just an intellectual, but also a Twitter intellectual, if I can use that term. Ouch. What? what no, no, no. We, well, I think I, I mean, we, we all are. I mean, you can't if we're on, if you're on Twitter and you're doing intellectual work. I mean, yeah, yeah. But. I mean, do you think that if you could do it all over again, and I I haven't followed you in the last few weeks to know kind of your your latest approach or um, pace of tweeting or if you've cut down or whatever it might be, but because because a lot of people do seem to be angry at you on Twitter, I'm just curious what you would call that. Yeah, I I, I, I think... My error was, to me, my work is my writing and my, I mean, I produce many op-eds. I'm writing op-eds constantly. I'm constantly writing academic work. Uh, my main job is a parent, actually, because my partner is a is a physician. So <laughs> my main job is parent. And my secondary job is my research and teaching. And my third job is op-eds and media. So I use Twitter to, I've used Twitter to blow off steam. Uh, And that was a mistake because the very medium of Twitter so decontextualizes and is so antithetical to a lot of intellectual work uh, that um, that it's really been, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's and, you know, analytic philosophers, we as are we're argumentative by our nature. That's what we do. We give 45 minute talks and we have hour-long question sessions, where the only form of a question is, here is my objection to what you say. And so you defend yourself constantly. That's like what you do. So if you take an analytic philosopher and you put them on Twitter, they're going to argue, but you can. But it's such a terrible mode to argue. And also, frankly, I joke around a lot. I use a lot of non-direct speech and and Twitter, as uh, as uh, as uh, everyone knows, decontextualizes it. It tempts you into decontextualizing, and it, it tempts you to make a sort of clever remark that re- relies on a lot of uh, a lot of background knowledge of your audience. As T. Nguyen, uh, the philosopher at Utah, points this out. Uh, so a clever remark relies on lots of background knowledge and then can easily be taken out of context. So it's a really terrible medium to facilitate intellectual exchange. Uh, to me, uh, I, I viewed it as a way of sort of blowing off steam uh, between what I regard as my real jobs of, of parenting, uh, 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 academic work, teaching, and uh, and being in the public sphere on on TV and uh, I mean if you look at the videos I you know the videos I do the media appearances they dwarf by orders of magnitude my Twitter presence um, 
I mean, I, I gave an academic lecture in Vienna a couple of weeks ago that has 170,000 views on, on uh, YouTube already. So, uh, so that's the work that I put my passion into, but I'm an argumentative guy. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, Twitter just, Twitter is just a sort of a way that really, um, sets people in a very bad light, unfortunately, when they're argumentative. And, and if they're, and if you use Twitter to blow off steam, that's going to get you in trouble. Uh, and I'm happy to uh, be a, uh, a case, a paradigm of that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just reminded, uh, you know, our, our friend Jamie Kerchick, uh, quit Twitter for like a year and a half, basically gave his, his Twitter password to, uh, his partner and said, don't give it to me. I just don't need it. And he, he was great. He was so happy <laughs> just being away for it for, yeah. for that, yeah. for that period. And I, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's promoting a book now. So he's gone back on. I, I really do feel like he's on, he's less happy as a result. And it's one of those things that, you yes. know, just, just even in my own life, when I, you know, I don't, I don't do this, like take a Twitter pause and really just like turn off my account. I know people who do that. Uh, but I notice that if I get distracted by something that's more important, uh, you know, then again, this kind of, you know, trying to get your ideas out there and using that, that horrific medium, um, it's yeah. just, you're, you're happier if you don't have to do it basically. I mean, are, are you thinking about, about just being like, yeah, screw it. I've got all this other stuff. I've, there's other ways I can get my ideas out, like screw Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is that like I'm incredibly social person and I'm, you know, usually surround myself with friends and, and, and things like this. And so Twitter sometimes is a kind of sociality for me. So uh, so I enjoy it sometimes in, in that regard. Uh, and it's a way of connecting with people and see what seeing what people are up to. And, uh, you know, I'm not on any I mean, uh, to be honest, like I started using Twitter when I was essentially forced off Facebook by Rod Dreher's sort of attack on me for a, for a private Facebook post. So it's ridiculous because now I'm being, you know, now I'm on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't mind being, um, I, you know, I wouldn't mind taking a Twitter pause and, and hopefully that will be near my, certainly my family hopes that'll be near in my future. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe just, you know, a final question, if you'll indulge me, because I thought it you came under a lot of criticism for it, but I actually thought it was a tweet that provoked a lot of interesting debate and conversation about legacy, why we do what we do, and even in some sense, our own mortality. I, you, I can't remember the exact wording that you used, but something to the effect that you want your, your work in philosophy to be remembered ideally 200 years from now. Um, and uh, people, you know, some people thought it was a little bit over the top, you know, whatever. But uh, I'm curious if, you know, how you see, I mean, legacy is clearly important to you. And even some of the things you've said previously, you, um, you do wanna be remembered in some fashion. Um, 200 years is maybe, pushing it. I mean, very <laughs> few people it. actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you were being somewhat hyperbolic, but I'm curious, totally. uh, this seems to drive you. And since we just have you, I'd be curious how, how you see that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's just, um, I think that the philosophy has become very professionalized and I'm subject to those, those, those forces myself. And so you write defensively and you write for a contemporary audience of 14 experts and it hurts my writing when I think that way. Uh, and I've been trying 
And so I have these two modes where I'm like a hyper specialist in philosophy, and then this other mode where I write uh, where I write for a much broader audience. And uh, ultimately, I want to be the kind of thinker who's not writing for twelve people in a specialized audience that is going to change over another ten years when the when the the hot questions and in the technical areas of philosophy shift over. Uh, and I don't want to just have my public writing. I want to be a complete philosopher. Uh, those are the standards that I hold for myself. I don't think I'll achieve that. Those are very high standards, but we have to have standards for ourselves. Uh, for me, that was a sort of flippant remark about the way I'd like to to sort of uh, way I'd like to fuse these two sides of myself so I could write something that you know in 50 years people could could see it's neither a reference to the last four issues of Philosophical Review, uh, nor is it um, nor is it uh, located in the uh, in the um, you know in in the political moment, but is something that speaks uh, to a broader set of uh, permanent themes that is the goal of my discipline to address. Well, on that note, Jason. Um... The Eternal, uh, The Importance of Legacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully this podcast will be uh, remembered forever and uh, go down in the, <laughs> in the annals of, of podcasting history on some level. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you on. It's a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Wonderful Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks.